Genesis chapter 19 this evening. <coughs> Genesis chapter 19. And <coughs> we'll just start reading from verse <coughs> 23. Oh, we might start back in verse 22 just to pick up the context from last week. Genesis chapter 19, verse 22 <coughs> says, Hasty, escape thither. For I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Now let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come now and spend some time gathered around your word. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to each of our hearts this evening. You would teach us, instruct us through the passage before us. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this evening, and that, Lord, we would leave uh, this evening singing your praises, giving all glory and honor unto you. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday, of course, we started looking at chapter 19. And we saw that chapter 19 really presents to us the consequences that come from a life of compromise. And it's seen in the life of this man, Lot. He compromised with the world, and because of it, all these consequences came into his life upon his family. We saw back in chapter 13 that Lot, of course, had chosen the, the most fertile grounds. He'd chosen it to be his possession. When, Lot, uh, when Abraham had given him that choice, he'd said, I want the fertile plain, and he journeyed, journeyed down there. He'd set up his tent, but it wasn't long before he left his tent, and he was dwelling in the city of Sodom itself. And by chapter 19, he was then sitting in the gate of the city. As we talked about last week, uh, that's the idea there, that he was in a position of authority now, a position of uh, power within the city itself. And he'd risen to this position really by compromising. He hadn't risen there by standing up for his faith. He hadn't risen there by standing up for morality and standing up for what his God teaches He'd risen to that position by compromising, keeping his mouth shut, if you like. And the New Testament talks about how he vexed his righteous soul with the wickedness of the city. But Lot didn't do anything about it. It vexed his soul. He did nothing about it. And of course, we saw last week the day of judgment finally arrived for those wicked cities of the plain. Uh, Sodom, of course, being uh, the primary city there. But we have the other cities as well. And with that day of judgment arriving, these two angels, of course, have come. Uh, they've been sent by God. They've come to warn Lot of the impending danger, warn him to leave before it's too late. And we saw that this was when the years of compromise really caught up with Lot. You now, he invited those two angels back to his house. He thought they were two men, of course. He invited them back, showed them hospitality. And then his house was surrounded by all the men of the city, demanding that he bring out the visitors so they might know them, so they might commit this gross immorality 
with them. A lot, of course, have pleaded with them not to do this wicked thing. Look there in verse 7. It says, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. He'd gone outside and he pleaded with them not to do this wickedness. You know, it was then that Lot finally began to realize that these people who he thought were his friends didn't respect him at all. They didn't respect him. They didn't value his opinion. In fact, they resented him. In verse 9 we read, it says, And, and they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. And so they didn't respect his authority. They were actually upset that he would judge them, that he would call their actions morally wrong. And so when the time came, he found that he had no influence, he had no integrity before the heathen, the men of the city. You know, as we saw, it wasn't just amongst his neighbors that he lost respect, even in his own family, his extended family, Lot was laughed at. In verse 14 there we saw, it says, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked under his sons-in-law. And so they laughed at him. Even his sons-in-law had no respect for him. He had no credibility before them. And so Lot suffered uh, because of his compromise. You know, he was not able. When the time came, he was not able to convince anyone of the danger that was coming. He lost his testimony before men. He became nothing but a laughing stock. And you know, as we saw, the only ones who were rescued with him were his wife and his two unmarried daughters. And even they had to be physically removed from Sodom by the angels. And that brings us now this evening to the second half of the chapter. And we see that there are yet more consequences to come. The consequences of his compromise are not yet finished. There is more to come. But firstly here we're told of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so firstly this evening, our first point, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look in verse 23. It says, The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So upon being rescued from Sodom, Lot and his wife and two daughters, they had been instructed by the angels to flee to the mountains and not look back. That was verse 17, okay? It said, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. So that was the instruction. But of course, Lot had pleaded to be allowed to flee to the smallest of the cities, the city of Zoar. Now, basically, because he still wanted the pleasures of Sodom. He didn't want to give it up yet. And the angel had conceded and given him permission. And so he fled to this small little city. That's as they arrive in the city, we're told the sun has now risen upon the earth. Verse 23, the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into 
Zoas, the sun's risen, he's entered into the city, and it's now that Lot is safe in the city uh, you know, walls that the judgment of God is now poured out upon the plain, upon the remaining wicked cities. And in verse 24, we read that God rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, it says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, sorry, and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now here we only read of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. But we know from other passages in the Word of God that there were two other cities destroyed at this same time. There was the city Admar and the city Zeboam. Let's just turn over to Deuteronomy 29. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 29 and verse 23. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 23 there of chapter 29, it says, And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And so we see there's these two other cities as well. So these four cities in all are destroyed. There was five cities. And so only one survives, the small city of Zoar. And it's only because Lot pleaded for that city to be spared, for him to flee to that city and live there. <clears throat> and so these four cities are destroyed by the Lord. And the wording here in verse 24 is interesting because it seems to suggest that there's two members of the Godhead at work here. Two members of the Godhead involved in the destruction of these cities. Look again in verse 24. It says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So we have two mentions of Lord at the start of the verse and at the end of the verse. And it seems that it's talking about two members of the Godhead. We're told that the Lord, Jehovah, rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord Jehovah out of heaven. And so it's as if Jehovah caused it to rain from Jehovah. That's what it's saying. Okay, Jehovah caused it to rain from Jehovah. And so it's an interesting wording. It suggests to us that there's two members of the Godhead at work here. And it would seem that the first member of the Godhead, the first one mentioned in the verse, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 18, he's the one who came in bodily form and he met with Abraham in chapter 18. He has that long discourse with Abraham, telling him what's going to happen to Sodom. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in pre-incarnate form, is here on earth at this time. And the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, calls down judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's the Father who sends that judgment from heaven. The Father sends the judgment. So we have both the Father and the Son involved in this judgment here. That seems to be why this verse is worded as it is, mentioning both. And this judgment here is said to take the form of fire, sorry, brimstone and fire rain down from heaven destroying everything. Let's just read the two verses again. It says, Then the Lord rained upon 
Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. And so we're told that he rains brimstone and fire upon the earth. He destroys the seas, the inhabitants, the ground. Everything is destroyed. It's, it's a place that's now uninhabitable. Now some have read the, this verse, uh, read this description of destruction, and they've sought to find a natural event that this might be describing, you know, that God used. Okay, that God used to bring about this destruction. And so some have suggested that what's described here is a volcanic eruption. You know, that a volcanic eruption happens spewing sulfur and ash and fire into the air, lava, that that's what this is describing here. Others have looked at the word in verse 25 where it says, and he overthrew, they've looked at that word overthrew and said that it suggests a violent earthquake. And that this earthquake was accompanied by an electrical storm. And that the two go together, the earthquake released gases from the earth and the electrical storm ignited those gases. And Morris is one of those. He says this, It seems possible, therefore, that God triggered an earthquake along, along the great fault at this time, which released and exposed to the atmosphere vast quantities of combustible hydrocarbons and sulfur. At the, as at, sorry, at the same time, God sent fire from heaven, lightning, which ignited the mixture in a great explosion and devastating fire. And so these commentators, they're not doubting God's judgment, okay? They're trying to find a natural event that fits what God used here. Now, while it is true that our God does and can use natural causes, can't he, to bring about his judgment, that is true. I don't believe that's the case here. I don't believe that's what's taking place here as the Lord rains down fire and brimstone from heaven. You see, we are clearly told here that God is the one who does this, okay? You read verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The Lord rains down fire and brimstone from heaven. God is the one who does this. And so this is not caused by a volcanic eruption. This is not caused by an earthquake with a storm at the same time. This is a unique supernatural event. And we see God send fire from heaven in other places, don't we? So this doesn't surprise us. We see him send fire from heaven to light on fire the, the, the sacrifice with Elijah there on the mount. Okay? We know that God can do this, send fire from heaven. Now God is able, perfectly able to do what's described here. And so I believe that this is a unique supernatural event where God sends brimstone and fire from heaven. So what exactly then is this brimstone and fire the Lord rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it was interesting studying this week because the word brimstone there, it's understood to refer to sulfur. And so it's talking about sulfur and fire. That's what the Lord's raining down upon the earth. And this is interesting because sulfur burns with a bright blue flame. And it's really cool if you Google it, you can see this. They actually find sulfur at the Dead Sea today and they light it on fire and it burns with this bright blue flame. It burns hot and it melts 
and, and it's incredible to watch. Go home on YouTube and have a look at it. And there's a volcano in Indonesia, I think it is, the same thing. It's got sulfur and it's burning blue. And that's what it's describing here. It's this sulfur on fire falling from heaven, this bright blue flame. That's what's falling. And as it burns, sulfur gives off a poisonous gas. It gives off sulfur dioxide. And so this, uh, this fire is falling from heaven. It's burning. It's giving off this poisonous gas. This gas then mixes with moisture in the air, and it becomes acid. And it destroys all plant life in the region. And so this is what's happening. The Lord is raining down sulfur on fire from heaven, and it is decimating all life in the region. Choking it with this poisonous gas, it's raining acid as well at the same time as the moisture in the air changes to acid. Now we can just begin to imagine it, can't we? This incredible scene of this blue flame falling from heaven and giving off this noxious gas and destroying all life. But not only that, not only do we have this fire and brimstone, this sulfur and fire falling from heaven, not only that, we also need to remember that this region is full of slime pits. Remember that? Chapter 14. Let's just go back there. Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> chapter 14, verse 10. It says, And the vale of Siddim, that's this valley here, was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they, 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 sorry, and they that remained fled to the mountain. Okay, we have these slime pits mentioned here in this region. It's full of all these slime pits. Now these are asphalt pits or bitumen. That's what it's talking about. And one writer noted this. He said, bitumen is a hydrocarbon allied to petroleum and natural gas. It is a lustrous black solid burning with a bright yellow flame and melting when ignited. And so this is the scene here. You've got the Lord raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. It hits the earth and ignites the slime pits. You've got uh, basically a whole region that's ready to explode, ready to combust. This whole region is now on fire. These slime pits ignite and burn with a bright yellow flame. They melt under the intense heat. Now one commentator summed up the scene really well. He said this, Burning brimstone fell from the sky, and by this rain of fire and brimstone, not only were the cities and their inhabitants consumed, but even the soil, which abounded in asphalt, was set on fire. So the entire valley was burned out and sank or was overthrown, i.e. utterly destroyed, and the Dead Sea took its place. The whole region basically sinks. As all this asphalt and everything is on fire, the whole region burns as the Lord sends fire and brimstone from heaven. You know, from this point on, these two words become synonymous with God's judgment, don't they? The words fire and brimstone. From this point on, this is the first time they're used. But from this point on in the Word of God, they're always synonymous with God's judgment upon sin. Let's just quickly turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, the very end of the Word of God. Revelation 19, verse 20. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on... 
but that's not right. I'm reading verse 19, verse 20, okay? And it says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, that wrought miracles before him, and which was uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It's the lake of fire. We always say the lake of fire, but it's the lake of fire burning with what? Brimstone. This sulfur on fire. If you go over to chapter 21 as well, Revelation 21, verse 8, we see the same thing. This is about the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We see fire and brimstone is forever synonymous with God's judgment upon sin. Indeed, it's the lake of fire and brimstone. That's the eternal destiny of the unsaved. And so what we see here in Revelation, uh, sorry, in Genesis chapter 19 is we see God pouring out His righteous judgment upon these cities, destroying all life in the region. Now, as one commentator put it, God rained down hell upon earth. That's literally what He did here. God rained hell upon earth fire and brimstone. We get a glimpse, really, when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that region today and the devastation, we get a glimpse of what awaits the unsaved in all eternity, the difference being that there is no relief from that suffering. There is no relief from the suffering they will endure. Eternity separated from God in the lake of fire and brimstone. And so it's clear that here in Genesis 19, this is a supernatural event. This is something unique as God rains down this fire and brimstone, turning what was once a paradise into a desolate wasteland. The commentator Dielich writes this. He says, Even to the present day, the Dead Sea, with the sulfurous vapor which hangs about, the great blocks of saltpeter and sulfur which lie on every hand, and the utter absence of the slightest trace of animal and veg- vegetable life in its waters, are a striking testimony to this catastrophe, which is held up in both the Old and the New Testaments as a fearfully solemn judgment of God for the warning of self-secure and presumptuous sinners. And that's really what it is. We look at Sodom and Gomorrah, we look at the devastation, and it really is a warning of what is to come. The judgment upon the earth. Fire and brimstone that God will pour out just as he did. As Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we see that with God's judgment now falling upon these cities, we see secondly this evening, we see the consequences now, we see that Lot's wife looked back. Lot's wife looked back. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 19. In verse 26 it says, But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. It's at this point in the passage that once again we see the, comp- the, the consequences of Lot's life of compromise come to the foreground, don't we? Once again, that's in view. You know, really at times when we look at Genesis 19, we really think of it as being the chapter about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It really is more about Lot and his compromise and the consequences of that. You know, back in verse 17, as we saw earlier, Lot and his family have been told to flee to the mountains. And not look back. That was the instruction from the angel, the instruction from God. 
flee and don't look back. They were to leave this life, leave this place, leave the pleasures of sin all behind. And they were to flee for their lives. But here, sadly, in verse 26, we read that Lot's wife looked back. She looked back. And the way that this is worded here in verse 26, it suggests to us that she was already lagging behind. She's dragging her feet, if you like. It says there in verse 26, but his wife looked back from behind him. She's behind him. Okay? She's not walking in step with Lot and their daughters. She's behind him. She's lingering behind the family as they flee. You see, her heart is not in this. As they're fleeing for their lives, her heart's not in this. She doesn't want to let go of what she had in Sodom. She still wants that life. She wants that sin. She doesn't want to let it go. And so she's lingering behind. You know, if she'd really believed the urgent message from the angels, she would have been fleeing, wouldn't she? She would have been making haste to get out of there and to make it to Zoar as quick as she could. You see, her actions here speak to us of her unbelief. Her unbelief, her lack of faith. And it's this unbelief that leads to her disobeying God. It's this unbelief that leads to her disobedience of God's clear instruction not to look back. We just read it again in verse 17. This is God's instruction. It says, And it came to pass when they brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee. And she disobeyed that command. She disobeyed. Why? Because of her unbelief. The word translated looked back in verse 26, where it says, but his wife looked back. The word translated looked back there has the idea of looked intently. And so she looks back intently at what she's left behind. And we need to understand that. This is not just that, you know, as they're fleeing, she caught a glimpse of the fire falling and she's looked to see. It's not that. That's not the idea here. She's looked back with a longing in her heart for what she's leaving behind. She's longing after Sodom and Gomorrah. She's longing after the sin, the wickedness, the comforts, the pleasures she enjoyed there. She's yearning for that life and doesn't want to let it go. And the consequence of this unbelief and this disobedience as she looks back is that she becomes a pillar of salt. Verse 26 says, But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. She becomes a pillar of salt. Now again, there's debate here. Debate amongst the commentators as to exactly what does this mean. You know, some believe that because she was lagging behind, that she got caught up in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Barnes, for instance, he writes this, Lot's wife lingering behind her husband and looking back contrary to the express command of the Lord is caught in the sweeping tempest and becomes a pillar of salt. So narrow was the escape of Lot. The dashing spray of the salt, sulfurous rain, seems to have suffocated her and then encrusted her whole body. And so that is the opinion of some, that she got caught up in the destruction, and that's what this is describing here. Others are of the opinion that this is, again, a unique judgment of God. That God, by his power, turned her into a pillar of salts. That this was a complete and 
instantaneous judgment from the Lord. Something God could only do. And again, this seems to fit the passage best. You see, we have no reason here to take the word of God in any way other than literally, do we? There's no reason not to read this verse literally and understand it literally. When God says she became a pillar of salts, that word became there means instantaneously, completely a pillar of salt. That's what it's talking about. And so the word of God says that this was an instantaneous event and so there's no reason for us not to take it literally. This was God's judgment upon Lot's wife because of her unbelief and her disobedience. And from then on, this pillar of salt that she became would be a testimony, would be a warning to all mankind of what happens when we look back. You see, our Lord himself referred to this as an example when he was talking about the events that will occur near the time of his second coming. He referred to this event by way of illustration. Let's just turn over there. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 and verse 32. The Lord says this, Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. The Lord tells us here, he says, remember Lot's wife. And the implication is that Lot's wife was seeking to hang on to her life in Sodom. Okay, she's seeking to hold on to it. As the Lord says in verse 33, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. She was seeking to hold on to her life in Sodom and the consequence was that she lost her life. You know, the warning for us, for all mankind, but for us as believers is clear. We must not look back with a longing heart at the things of the world. We must not look back. Commentator Goosey writes this, he says, Remember Lot's wife. In other words, no Christian should have a heart like Lot's wife, as we see the end of the age. A heart that loves the world and will in some sense regret the judgment God will bring upon it. We need to look forward to our deliverance, not back to a world passing away and ripe for judgment. We need to look forward, not back. We must not look back to the things of the world with a longing heart, a desire for those things. Look back with regret that we've given up those things because the Lord asks us to. Indeed, we must be careful that we do not love the things of the world. Isn't that what 1 John 2 verse 15 tells us? It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're not to love the things of the world. We're to love the Father, love him. Put him first. So the question is, where does our heart lie? Lot's wife, her heart lay in Sodom still. That's where it was. That's why she looked back with this longing. Where does our heart lie? as believers. You know, loving the things of the world, if we love those things, it will consume us. It will destroy our relationship with the Lord. Just as it consumed and destroyed Lot's wife here in Genesis chapter 19. You know, as we read on now in our passage this evening, we are reminded, just briefly here, we're reminded that Lot himself was only saved by the mercy and grace of God. 
Look in verse 27. <clears throat> goes on and says, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where the Lord stood, uh, sorry, where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the plain, land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Now these three verses are almost like a side note, okay? Because here we're taken quickly to have a look at what's happening with Abraham. What's happening with him? We see Abraham here rises up and he returns to the place where he'd been speaking with the Lord. The day before, he'd been looking over the valley, remember? Looking down over the plain. And the Lord had told him what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham returns to this place where he spoke with the Lord and he looks down over the plain and he sees the smoke rising from the judgment of the Lord, from the destruction that's taken place. But you know, as Abraham beholds the scene before him, he has confidence that God had answered his prayer. Remember what his prayer was? That God would rescue the righteous. You know, he started with 50. You know, if the Lord finds 50 righteous, he'll spare Sodom. If he finds 45, 40, he went all the way down to 10. Asking the Lord to spare the righteous, knowing that his God could not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. And so as he, you know, beholds the scene, as he looks at the smoke rising, he has that confidence, doesn't he? Confidence in his God, that God has answered his prayer and rescued the righteous. And indeed, that's what verse 29 tells us. It says, And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And so in verse 29 sort of makes us understand that fact. Abraham had prayed. He'd prayed for it, and God had remembered his servant. He'd rescued Lot. Lot was saved by the grace of God, wasn't he? He only got out of there by the mercy and grace of the Lord. But he lost so much, didn't he, because of his compromise. He left some of his family behind, as we saw last week, in Sodom. And they were destroyed as God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. He's now lost his wife as she's turned back to look with a longing heart. And now all that Lot has left in this life is his two unmarried daughters. And it's here that we see finally the last consequence for Lot's compromise, and that is Lot's daughters commit gross immorality. Lot's daughters commit gross immorality. Let's look in verse 30. It says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. Here we see the final consequence for Lot because of this life of compromise. And indeed it's with this sad note that Lot departs the scriptures. We don't read of him again after this. This is how the scriptures end the account of Lot, with this sad story. Verse 30, it indicates to us that Lot and his two daughters, they don't remain in the city of Zoar very long. Verse 30, as we read, it says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. And he dwelt in the cave, he and his two daughters. 
He doesn't dwell there very long. He pled with the angels. He said, let me flee to this tiny little city. <clears throat> and they'd agreed, and he'd fled there. But now it would seem that the, the city no longer holds its appeal. Indeed, he's afraid, it says. He's afraid because he's just seen God rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. I think we'd all be afraid, wouldn't we? He's afraid. And so he's too scared to stay any longer in this city. You know, indeed, as he looks around and sees the destruction, as he sees the, the fertile plains, the thing that attracted him to the region in the first place, those fertile plains are now destroyed. And so the region no, no longer has any, any prosper, prosperity, does it? There's nothing to give the region any reason for him to dwell there. It's no longer as the Garden of Eden. You know, chapter 13, verse 10, when he chose this land... <clears throat> Go there, chapter 13, verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. In chapter 13, he chose the region because it was like the garden of Eden. It was this beautiful paradise, fertile land, a place to live, the perfect place. But now God has totally destroyed the region. It's a desolate wasteland. It's hot. It's scorched by fire from God. It's exactly as we see the Dead Sea today. The desolate region where no life dwells. And so we see that Lot now flees the city and he goes to the mountain exactly as he was originally told. Verse 17, as we read earlier, he was told to flee to the mountain. And so now he goes to the mountain and they dwell in a cave. And it's here as they dwell in this cave that Lot's daughters scheme to get him drunk and to commit incest with their father so that they might have children. And we see that there in verse 31. It says, And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And so they come up with this scheme to get him drunk and to commit incest with their father. And the reason for their scheme is clear. It's told us here in the word of God. They know that their father is getting older. He's getting older, and soon he's going to die. And they're fearful of what's going to become of them once he's gone. They're fearful. They're fearful that there's no one to care for them. They're fearful that they're not going to get married. They're not going to be able to have children of their own to raise up and to take care of them. That they'll end up being destitute, poor, with nothing. And so this is the motivation behind their scheme. You know, what we see here is, we see immediately that his daughters had no faith in God, do they? You see that? They have no faith in God. This, this problem is before their eyes and immediately they turn to the Lord. No, they don't turn to God because they have no faith in God. They have no relationship with God. And so they look at this problem and they look at the circumstances before them and the only solution they can come up with is gross immorality. That's a sad thing, isn't it? The only solution that comes to mind is sin. Gusick writes this, he says, Evidently, they decided it was the only thing to do under the circumstances, except to trust God 
which did not seem to occur to them at all. Obviously, living in Sodom affected more than Lot's. The effects were also clearly seen in his daughters. And we do. We see the effects of a life lived in Sodom upon his daughters. You know, all the way through this story here, in chapter 19, we've seen how Lot's compromised with the world, Lot's failure to lead his family in a life of separation and a life of faith unto the Lord, a relationship with God. His failure to do that has led to a family who has no relationship with God. They have no trust in God. And indeed, they don't know the Lord. And we see that clearly here. (coughs) Instead, we see a family who are consumed by the world and consumed by the thinking of the world. And it's highlighted here by his daughters as their only solution is sin. And in verse 33, we now see his daughters carry out this scheme. Verse 33, it says, And they made their father drink wine that night. And the first one went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the first one said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. Here we see them carry out this horrible scheme, this wickedness. They each on successive nights get their father drunk and they go in and they lie with him. And both conceive and they both bring forth sons. Verse 37. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And the same is the father of children of Ammon unto this day. Now here we see the sin of Lot has far-reaching consequences, doesn't it? Because the two sons end up being the fathers of two nations that are opposed to Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites. These two nations give Israel a lot of grief over the years. So even the nation of Israel suffered because of Lot's compromise, his sin. You know, chapter 19 As I said, oftentimes we read chapter 19 and we focus on Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? The destruction of these wicked cities. But really the chapter is about the sad consequences that come from a life of compromise. You know, Lot effectively lost his whole family to sin, didn't he? His whole family. Because he led them in this compromise. You know, when we compromise with the world, the same thing will happen. It will not only affect us, but it will also affect our family. It will affect our children. You see, we must set the Lord first. We must give Him first place in our life. We must give our our lives to Him as a living sacrifice. Isn't that what Romans 12 says? Let's go there as we finish. Romans 12. I know we know these verses well. Excuse me. Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now here we're told that instead of being conformed to the world, we are to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. You see, we must be different. We must stand apart. We must be holy, separated unto Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we would each take heed to the warning. Lord, the warning given here in chapter 19 of what happens when we compromise with the world. Lord, may we learn the lesson of Lot's life. May, Lord, we put you first. May we be transformed in your image, not conformed to the world. May you help us to bring our children up to know you, to have a, a relationship with you. And Lord, may you just help us to ponder these things as we depart from this place this evening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.